And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. What are we reading this week, Harmony? We are reading a book called The Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd because we are still in Christian land. Yay! It's true. We took a brief detour, but we're back. We're, we're back to talk more about Jesus, apparently. Orthodox Easter hasn't happened yet, so we gotta ring it in. We're gonna ring it in. This is the one time on Rebel Girls Book Club that you'll get serious Christianity content, and we're going to really milk it. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to give the summary, or do you want me to give the summary? I want you to give the summary. <laughs> so the Book of Longings is pitched, and I think accurately, as a feminist tale that follows the fictional wife of Jesus, who in this story is named Anna. And she is a 15-year-old at the beginning of this story who wants to be a scholar, essentially. She spends a lot of her time writing, thinking deeply about theology, expressing stories in untraditional ways, especially Old Testament stories. And this is extremely taboo in Judaism at the time that this story is taking place. This is hella not allowed. The only reason Anna is able to do it is because her father kind of has a soft spot for her. And there's other things going on in the family that for a little while allow her to skate under the radar. And all of this changes when she is brought to the market one day by her entire family and is betrothed to a man who is much older than her. And really, it's a story about Anna discovering what she actually wants in life and how to get those things. Her betrothed ends up dying and she thinks that's what she wants and she's really excited about it, only to discover that life has a whole new set of hardships and that life isn't freedom for a woman, even if you are considered to be a widow at the time. Anna, at sort of the end of the section, ends up marrying Jesus, a man who she's only met a handful of times, but is very fond of, and is now living with his family in Nazareth. And I would say where we left off, we're sort of at the cusp of her about to be going on a new adventure with Jesus as he's about to go off to kind of start doing his Jesus thing as we think of it today. Yay! What were your impressions rereading this book this time around? Yeah, so that's a really good question. This is the second time that I've read this book. When I read it the first time, I really just kind of remember liking it more than I expected it to. For me, this was a book of the month pick that I kind of just got because I was curious about it, but I didn't, you know, go out of my way to pick this book if that makes sense, it sort of fell into my lap. And I remember just really enjoying the story of it and liking Anna a lot as a character and appreciating, I guess, this interpretation of history that I don't interact with a ton. I would say returning to it, especially with a more critical eye, 
There's a couple of things that I find bothersome, which we're going to dive into in this episode for sure, because they definitely relate to the feminist critique of it. But overall, I think a lot of my impressions are the same. I really like Anna. I think that she's a really compelling and interesting main character. And I like watching her figure out that the world isn't as black and white as she thinks it is, which is interesting when you have a character who's already kind of on the outside, because I think when you have a character who's on the outside, you assume that they see the world with more nuance. And we're discovering with Anna that in some ways that's true. And in some ways, she really does ascribe to like what she thinks should be happening. And we're really watching her understand society, I think, in a new and more nuanced light a lot of the time as she has new experiences and sees how things don't go her way or are unjust and unfair and how to deal with those things. That makes sense. I think, I mean, I'll get into my impressions in just a second, but I think that makes sense and is partly because Anna is a young and also incredibly privileged character, which I'm sure we will unpack later. But I think that a lot of her figuring things out and figuring out how the world really works and what's right versus wrong for her is a part. It functions because she's been so sheltered her entire life in a way that most people in the society at the time weren't allowed to be. So as for my first impressions, I have mixed feelings about reading this book so closely to The Passion of Mary Magdalene because they're both about the Bible and they're both about women who love Jesus. And one is about passion, one is about longing. We even get several mentions of Isaac and so that's a little weird for me in some ways I'm like Sue Monk kid did you read The Passion of Mary Magdalene and then just decide to do your own thing steal from Elizabeth Cunningham I don't know I'm not making any accusations but the Isis thing is very sus but I do I did like it overall and I know that they are incredibly different they have incredibly different tones and the characters are very different and so it is interesting to get these two very different perspectives of what womanhood next to like a divine being that represents Christianity would be. And I had some issues with the book that, I mean, I had one big issue. That was it <laughs> that we're going to discuss a little bit later. But other than that, the writing is really well done. And I think I was able to make a lot of parallels. I think it, it helped me understand what parts of The Passion of Mary Magdalene must be canon because I haven't read the New Testament before. And it made me think about spirituality in a new way. Yeah, I totally agree. I also had a hard time not comparing it to The Passion of Mary Magdalene, which was interesting because, of course, this was a reread for me and Passion of Mary Magdalene was a new experience. And for you, it's the opposite. But I think that's something that struck me that I found interesting was that to a certain extent, both books are dealing with some similar themes and questions, which I, I think comes naturally from the fact that their subject matter is Jesus. But a lot of what this book dwells on too is this idea of who makes a prophet and what conditions make a prophet or like, where does God actually live and who decides that and who's served by that decision? Or I think that there's also a storyline going on right now too that also thinks about anger as power versus love and forgiveness and godliness, which I feel like are themes that we saw a lot throughout both The Passion of Mary Magdalene and this. I think some of them are coming up with similar answers and some of them are coming up with different answers. I don't know that I necessarily want to talk about those this week. I feel like maybe we should save that for next week to be able to fully compare both books. But it is, I think, interesting how when you think about 
prominent biblical characters in fiction, and this has been true for forever, it's, it feels like the same questions just continually come up and people are really gnawing on these same themes that feel hard to swallow. And I think it's because there are questions about who makes a prophet or what makes a prophet. Jesus has this moment in the Book of Longings where he talks about the fact that when he was younger, he really thought he was God's chosen one and could be special. But now he's lived the life of a pariah on the outside, working his ass off essentially as a carpenter, traveling from place to place. He feels like he hasn't heard from God in ages. So what does that make him? Is he still that prophet? Did he just think that he was an overprivileged child, essentially? Where does that leave him out now as an adult who's just kind of trying to live his life and provide for his family in a way that feels godly to him, but is separate from all the other supposedly godly or God-worshipping things that are happening around him. That's very interesting, because in this book, I don't get the sense that Jesus was particularly overprivileged. He is the oldest child, but we get a lot more about how he how he is a pariah in his community and has always been a pariah in his community. And this Jesus is more of a peasant and more realistic, I feel, than the other Jesus that we just met. This is a man of the people and has been a man of the people. And he's, I think this idea of him not hearing God, and I don't know this for for certain, but there's, I think, a mention in the Bible maybe about Jesus's lost years and like him having to deal with doubt. So I think that's a function of it. But I don't, I don't see him as being privileged at all. I get the sense that his relationship with God in this book is very much presented as, I mean, you described it well in in an episode about the Passion of Mary Magdalene, about how God is supposed to come first, how it is the air you breathe. Those words that you used were word for word, almost mirrored in one of the passages in this book. For him, it just is the secret and essence of life. And he's really, really leaned into that and taking comfort in it but is unsure, kind of in the same way Anna is at times, whether God actually cares about him or can give him that sort of comfort, you know, because at the end of the day, God takes people from you. There's a lot of death in this book and life goes on and it's not always pleasant. And if you're attributing everything that happens in your life to God, then what does that say of God? Why is he doing this? So I think it's kind of reckoning with that, the fact that you're told that there is this great, powerful being who promises you life and heaven. And but the idea of some sort of paradise, you are the chosen people. But in reality, the world is cruel and rough and life is suffering. (laughs) Yeah, which I think is really interesting, too, because again, similar to Passion of Mary Magdalene. Sorry to anyone who didn't listen to those episodes. I suggest you I suggest you start there if you've made it here. Yeah, support Elizabeth Cunningham, because I bet she's not making as much money as Sumon Kid. So go and listen to those episodes and read that book. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Maggie. It's true. I mean, Sumon Kid wrote The Secret Life of Bees and then just kind of took off. But what I was going to say was, I think that something interesting that both Jesuses, both Jesuses say is this idea that paradise can be on earth. And in The Passion of Mary Magdalene, personally, at the very least, I feel like you get a very visceral sense of that because you're watching magic happen. And even though there's suffering, our main character isn't, she's weighed down on it, but it 
is, I think, less melancholy about it potentially than Anna is, which I think changes. Passion of Mary Magdalene reads much more like an adventure novel in that sense. Yes, this reads a lot more realistic, more realistic fiction here. <laughs> yeah, but I think that it's interesting then that Jesus still says that because in, in this novel, when Jesus says that paradise can still be on earth and God can be within us all, he's saying that in the face of really unspeakable cruelty, which sounds weird to say because there's unspeakable cruelty and passion of Mary Magdalene too, but tonally they feel very different. And here suffering is just weighted down at all privilege levels too. I, th- I want to almost start, I think, with the privilege thing, because that's something that Anna as a character really goes on a journey with in this half of the book. But I mean, even her closest friend who starts off the book as not being her friend at all, Tabitha, who also comes from a wealthy family, is raped. Most people refuse to call it rape. And then when she tells her story and is brave enough to say, look at what happened to me, this is awful. She's told that she shamed the family, has her tongue cut out, and then eventually is sold as a slave and escapes and makes her way back to Anna, but like by a thread and them coming back together is really coincidental. And this is the reality we're rooted in as Jesus and Anna are trying to figure out the fact that heaven and paradise and God can live within us all and be achieved on earth. And even though it's the same sentiment, it reads really differently, I think, in both books. Yeah, I think you're right. It does read very differently. How do you want to talk about privilege? How does that tie in here? Because you talked a little bit about Tabitha. Was that just to kind of compare Anna and Tabitha's differing states? Because we get the sense that even though Anna keeps being forced into bad situations and her parents are very callous and cruel and don't really seem to care about her, they never, I don't think they would have cut her tongue out. They never would physically maim her. They always make sure that she's going to be provided for in some fashion. So they're at least kind of caring about her bodily self. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I think it also begs the question of the fact that Anna, and this is very much just in the society, in this historical period time, Anna's bodily health still has a lot of value because she's a virgin who's never been married. And as soon as Tabitha makes it very clear that that's no longer true for her, even though it was you know, against her, against her consent, against her will, her privilege automatically starts falling. They start at the same level and they're kind of (laughs) falls from privilege to a certain extent end up being very different. And I think the question with Anna is, I wonder, the book tries to play out the fact that Anna loses her privilege. And I mean, on the surface, she does because she's kicked out of her home when she marries Jesus. She is not allowed back. Her mother doesn't talk to her for a full month before she marries Jesus. So she'd rather that Anna was dead and means it. But when she goes to live in Nazareth, there's a line where she says that she has this wake up call about being a spoiled little rich girl. But personally, I didn't really get the sense that that sunk into her until she lost her daughter, Susanna. And I was wondering what you thought about that change for her and whether that worked for you or didn't work for you. To me, I didn't really feel like the character understood or believed believed the status shift until pretty close to the end of the part that we just read, which for reference, we read to page 215, just so you all know. 
You bring up a lot of good points. And so I'm going to go ahead and start by not answering your question and pivot, pivot a little bit away to talk about Anna's privilege. So one of the things that I think differentiates Anna from the rest of the woman we see in this book, except for Yaltha, is that Anna is privileged in that she gets to learn how to read and write. So that right there gives her way more agency. And also it's something that's only reserved for men. So she has this higher status than all of the other women because she can literally... She she has a different language. She has multiple different languages, actually, but she is able to read and write. And therefore, she is less womanly. And she's given a privilege that's only rewarded to men. So that's a big thing. And I don't know. So now to go back to your question, I don't know if I did see her starting to reckon with her privilege necessarily after the death of her daughter. But I saw her reckon with her privilege a little bit being like, Oh, I'm a rich girl who has to learn how to do chores now. Wow, it sucks that I don't know how to do anything, but I'm gonna be a good wife. I think she still kind of holds herself to a higher plane though than the rest of the other woman because she knows how to read and write. And I think after the death of her daughter that comes back. And so I don't see her reckoning with her privilege there. I see her reckoning with her position because after the death of her daughter, she starts to realize that even though she's pretended to be a good wife for this amount of time, she's not. And she's still an outsider no matter what she does. So in that way, I kind of feel like because privilege isn't wholly hierarchical, I feel like she's almost establishing herself as having less privilege in some arenas because she's an outsider. But I don't know if it's actually less privilege either, because what it is, is her establishing that she's going to have agency and she's going to make agency for herself no matter what. And that message might deserve to be unpacked a little too, because not everyone has the privilege to make their own agency. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think to me what the most, the thing that you articulated that I think I was trying to get at was the fact that privilege and position here are two different things. And I don't necessarily know that the book unpacks that as much as I wish it would, at least at this point. I think to what you said about the fact that not everyone gets that choice to have that agency, essentially, that she is working to so hard to hold on to for herself is also really important. Because you're right, it does come back to the fact that she's essentially a scholar even though she's not supposed to be. And I think an important part of this is that that's a core part of her identity and how she thinks about herself and how she positions herself in the world mentally. And a lot of the other women we see don't have that ability to think about themselves outside of themselves as a wife or a mother. And Anna has no interest in any of that. As much as she ends up pregnant and ultimately wants that pregnancy, She's adamant the entire time that she doesn't want kids. And Jesus is sad about that initially, but respects it. And the reason she's able to do that is because she had this, she has this privilege of essentially having a bigger identity than her societal role as a woman, which feels weird to say, but is, I think, the way the story is playing out. So how do you feel about that then, though? Because I do think it's important for us all to be able to recognize our own agency and our own worth, but also we're living in a story and a time period in which no one else, especially not woman, has that agency and worth and like has that ability to recognize it. And how do we feel about that? Right? Because I feel like in the real world, (laughs) 
This is something people deal with a lot. I need to do this for myself. And it's not even something I necessarily need to survive. But in my soul, it's something I need to survive. But not everyone else gets that. And then we end up resenting that person who gets to do that thing for themselves. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Because on the one hand, you know, historically, it takes a couple of people breaking the status quo to start making change to trailblaze and show it's possible to do these things. And then other people follow suit. So to a certain extent, Anna is doing this thing for herself, but is showcasing the fact that it's not witchcraft that she can read and write and potentially in and of herself is opening up opportunities for other women. Having said that, I think that the book only shows a little bit the ways in which Anna is able to start opening up those opportunities for other women. And this is partially due to her new position in life. She has a lot less power than she would have if maybe she had gone through with her first marriage and he died after they were married or things like that. Or even if she'd become a concubine, right? Because then she would have had another learned friend. Yeah, I think we see her start to think about that towards the end of this chapter when Tabitha, when Mary gives Tabitha the loot and we see Anna realize that this can be Tabitha's new voice and that voice is so important and powerful for everyone. And I think another way we see that is that Anna is determined to use her writings to help tell the stories of people who can't tell their own stories, which we see directly when she writes Tabitha's story down. But we know that the most important scrolls that she saved when they were going to be thrown away are stories of real things that were happening, that were injustices that need to be told. But I don't necessarily know if that goes far enough from a contemporary lens as to doing what you described, essentially. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think that the book could go farther because I think we see Anna start to push boundaries for other women but for the most part she keeps it pretty insular she doesn't teach Mary how to write or anyone like that you know people who might be interested or swayed in her household because not everyone's like Judith right Judith is her sister-in-law who is very anti everything Anna's got going on but her other sister-in-law and her mother-in-law are her family they love her and they support her even if they think she's kind of an odd duck for the most part so I feel like through a contemporary lens as I read this what I want for Anna to do is to like share her power And we haven't, I think we've seen the beginning inklings of that, but we haven't seen it fully realized. And I think that a question I ask myself as a a reader, I guess, is do I hold Anna to the standard of an adult, which she is in this society? Or do I think about myself at 15 and whether I was that self-aware? She's, of course, a little bit like a couple of years older now, but she's in her late teens at most while this story is happening. I think by the time we end, she's in her 20s because Yaltha says that her daughter would be just a little bit is 21 and she's just a little bit younger than her still I mean at 20 you know from like 15 to 22 I was definitely not always thinking about those things and at I think after I hit 20 that was when personally I really started to think about the ways in which I needed to share my power more actively but I don't know where I come out in this because it's not contemporary times and Anna has been an adult for a long time in this context and has learned in some ways and not in others. I mean I think you brought up a good point too though the fact that she doesn't have as much agency as she would if she were a rich woman and no matter what she's still a woman in the society and therefore does not have that much agency 
seriously. She has no legal rights. And I think about it, I'm 26. And I do very little to share my power. I try to help out when I can. But a lot of the time, it just feels it's so much to survive. And I don't have anything to give, you know, whether that's monetarily or energy wise, there's just not that much in that well. So when she's writing at this point in time, she is doing it for herself and for her soul. And so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's like unfair of us to expect that of her. I think it was a really good point though that you brought up the stories because even when she's 12 at the beginning of this book, she talks about the stories and she's talking about finding women in her religion and like telling the untold stories of women that appear in these different scriptures. And that to me is that's an act of grace, right? Because you're finding those women and then you're able to someday share that with other women. And then, okay, let's talk a little bit about Judith because I kind of feel bad for her because here she is. She married a second son, so she has even less privilege than she thought she was going to have. She had no privilege to begin with. Because she was supposed to marry Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. And then this spoiled little rich girl shows up and she can't do any of the work. And she refuses to have kids, which is your one job in life. So Jesus is there, super happy with her. And she has to see him flaunting around. And like this girl has nothing. She provides nothing of value in this society. And so I really feel for Judith and justice for Judith. No, I totally agree. I When I, when I talked about the fact that Judith was cruel. It's because she is. <laughs> True, but it's it's not without reason. It's not cruel just to be cruel, right? She's not some Cinderella stepsister who's an asshole just to be an asshole. There's real reason and motivation behind all of it, which I think makes her and their whole family dynamic a much better crafted and more human story, you know? Because I can really see pretty much anyone reacting just like that. And I think too, it also speaks to a point I was going to make, which is that there was so little agency for women of really any social and class status at this point in time. Although of course, always more the richer you are, but still little to go around that asking other women to become pariahs too is a lot. That's a big ask of other people who are just trying to survive and live their lives. And I mean, the whole reason that Anna and Jesus get engaged to begin with is because they're very fond of each other. It's very insta-lovey because they've only met like a handful of times at this point. And Jesus literally has to save her from being stoned because of the rumor mill. So it's a lot to ask other women to put themselves in that position too, I think, when they're just trying to make it home to their families to like live the lives that they have in the best way that they can. And I feel like Judith is the prime example of that. Judith is just trying to do her duty, do her honor, live the best life she can in the circumstances that she has. And you're right, Anna comes in and she's the antithesis of everything that Judith has worked for and really happy with Jesus to boot. (laughs) And Anna, like I'm not trying to blame the victim here, but Lana doesn't ever go out of her way. We're talking about her never really realizing her privilege. She never really goes out of her way to endear herself to Judith. She never has an honest discussion. She never tries to find out who Judith really is beyond the surface level. And Anna knows Judith's motivations and knows that she is kind of a privileged brat and that these are big barriers in their relationship. And so I feel like has more honest because she is that person in that higher position in a lot of ways. She should be the one reaching out. Yeah, I don't know either. But I will say, 
I think that this is a book that very much shows the power of female solidarity. Anna gains power as she starts gleaning knowledge either from, this is oversimplifying it, but like her enemies, like her mother, or from her aunt who's her friend. And then she learns even more when she finally befriends Tabitha. And then when she becomes so close with Mary, Vesalius, you know, people like that. But I do appreciate the fact that this book also paints in troubled relationships too because it's too so I feel like often when I see narratives about female solidarity the relationship gets boiled down a lot between women but in reality it's all just about the fact that everyone's individuals you're not gonna jive with every single person that you meet so female solidarity is really important and yeah Anna definitely could have done more here but I do kind of appreciate the fact that Kid leaves in complicated relationships and not everything is just Anna collecting all of these women and knowledge to her side in a show of solidarity because I don't think that's really how life works either and that's not to say that Anna shouldn't have reached out I just appreciate that aspect of this book even if I think the character was probably wrong yeah I think Anna is wrong a lot and I think that's probably more realistic especially given her society and age. I think I disagree a little bit with your, I mean, I don't know because I'm, I don't know what book we're talking about specifically, but the idea of female solidarity to me, and I guess this is important even though it veers, this is a little bit off topic, but we're, we're a feminist podcast. So like, let's talk a little bit about feminism. I don't think it has to do with liking everyone, but I think that it does have to do with, we both recognize that we are oppressed and let's do our best to be on the same team rather than opposing teams. And sometimes that's really, really important and really radical and very, very hard. And so I don't know about all of you listeners, but I know that for myself growing up, that's something that I've really had to struggle with and it doesn't mean that I've never had complicated relationships with women or that I don't still have complicated relationships today but I think a part of growing up and a part of the privilege that we have today in our society and a part of realizing that female solidarity can exist or just woman solidarity because let's not limit it to females or just solidarity in general with your fellow humankind is trying to make everybody's lives more easy and just trying to be a decent human to everyone and treating everyone with kindness even when they're sometimes an asshole. So Anna has to learn that a little bit but I think she did a really good job partially learning it with Tabitha and I do think that was very skillfully written and you know I thought it was going to be like a, oh she's like this and I'm like this I'm the not that girl and you know it really flipped the script very well and she was able to realize that Tabitha is also a human even though she can't read and write. Yeah, I agree with you. And I agree with everything you just said. I just think that the part where you talk about the fact that it's very hard is real. And in practice, sometimes whether or not you like a person does matter. It shouldn't matter. And I think that working towards it not mattering is part of the hard part. But I appreciate the fact that in some ways, in some cases, Anna is able to make those connections and sometimes she isn't because I think that that makes it feel really true to life for me. And that's what I appreciate is the flawedness of it, essentially. Because I think an example of where she is able to practice some solidarity with somebody who she's got a really bad, complex relationship with is her mother. Her mother actively goes out of the way to make Anna's life harder, but Anna's able to still glean things and knowledge from her and also, in many circumstances, offer her a lot of empathy and understanding with the 
understanding of why her mother would want to keep her body her choice to herself and the understanding when they have a scene where I have it written down too so I guess I can just read it but they have a scene where her mother explains some things to her and why she wants Anna's life to go the way that it will and Anna is even though her mother is ostensibly her enemy in a lot of ways and is also very cruel and careless and seems self-centered a lot of the time Anna is able to keep that open for a really long time and when that door finally closes it's because her mother closes it not because Anna does so I think that that's an aspect of the solidarity thing here where I feel like it is kind of nuanced and I appreciate that even though I do ultimately agree with you, Judith deserves more. <laughs> well, yeah, because Judith isn't nearly as bad as her mother and she offers way more empathy for her mom. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But the passage is... Husbands may be loathsome creatures, she was saying, but they're necessary. Without their protection, women are easily mistreated. Widows can even be cast out. The young ones resort to harlotry, the old ones to beggary. Like Sophocles, my mother was capable of tragic sweeps of imagination. Father will not cast me out, I told her. He takes care of Yalfa, who's a widow. Do you think he would not take care of me, his daughter? He won't always be here. He too will die, and what will happen to you then? You cannot inherit. If father dies, you will be a widow as well. Who will care for you? You cannot inherit either, she sighed. My care will fall to Judas. And you think he will not provide for me or for Yalfa? I don't think he'll be able to provide for any of us, she answered. That scene goes on, but that was a, a moment that to me really shed a lot of light as to what Anna's mother was about and also how society is messed up <laughs> in these circumstances. And it's interesting too, because later in the book, everything her mother says comes to fruition for her. Life is harder for her with the widow status. She's almost stoned because of the widow status. She's accused of being an adulteress because of the, or a fornicator because of the widow status. And those little moments of breakthrough to me felt powerful. I think because that's a lot of the times how people actually learn lessons in real life. And it's a shitty way to learn a lesson. But yeah, I don't know. That just kind of spoke to me. I think that was a really interesting passage, too, because it really shed light on the fact Judas, who is Anna's adopted brother, isn't her mother's child. It was a family member's child, but Judas is her mother's favorite. And the reason, after we learned that, to me, seems very clearly because he's the only one who can provide for her. It's all about survival. And reading that passage, I still am not convinced that anything her mother does is really in Anna's best interest. It's all about keeping herself afloat. But that's how dire it is. You could be living like a queen and you can have all the riches and finery, but it's all contingent upon this one man. And once he dies, it's gone. And she hates her husband. Her husband treats her like shit. So I, I don't know. Yeah, no. And I think that the place where I see her mother trying to look out for her is that she's trying to teach her these lessons and say, this is how you survive. She tries to pass that knowledge on. And Anna just isn't interested essentially until it becomes an object lesson. But I do agree with you otherwise that it is all about self-preservation and it's all about self-preservation because it has to be because you're right that is just straight up how dire the situation is 
Do you want to, there's a very important point that we haven't touched on that we really just need to touch on real quick. Yeah, I think that we should talk about Lobby, who is, I think, probably the biggest problem both Harmony and I have with this story, because his character treatment is just absolutely dismal. And he's the only Black character, so it's real noticeable. I almost, I just wish in some instances that he he wasn't included. I don't think that we needed to have him here. And, you know, this book was published in 2020, and I want to give the author the benefit of the doubt. And so when he was first introduced, and when he was first introduced, he was introduced as a Black character from Africa, who essentially was a former slave and was now working as a servant. I really wanted to see if we were going to have a sort of Tabitha scenario happen where it's deceptively simplistic at first and then we get more context later on. And I guess there's still time, but it's really not looking like it's happening. And he has five lines in the entire story and he's he's called Anna's friend, but Anna doesn't seem to, because he has no lines and his whole character is simply being meek, we don't get to see any of that. It doesn't seem like Anna really thinks of him as a friend. And I don't know what this author was doing. I don't know where the sensitivity readers were, but it was incredibly uncomfortable. And I just, this is this is white feminism. That's it. That's it right there. You want an example? That is it. Yeah, I, I guess the only heads up I'll give is that Lavi isn't super present right now. He does stay present throughout the rest of the story. But I will say I don't remember off the top of my head if these issues get rectified or not. So stay tuned to next week to see. But I want to read the passage really fast where he's introduced because I feel like it tells you everything you need to know about what's up. So he's introduced on page 33. Lavi, who'd been staring grimly into the basin of the water, lifted his gaze and I saw that his eyes swam with sorrow. Mother had an ally in Shipra, scheming Shipra, but I had Lavi. Father had bought him a year ago from a Roman legate who was glad to rid himself of a North African boy better suited to housework than military life. Lavi's name meant lion, but I'd never heard the faintest roar in him, only a gentle need to please me. If I left to marry, he would lose his only friend. This whole passage is how Anna sees him throughout the entire book. He's really just a plot prop who's there all the time. To serve her. Yeah, he gets absolutely no lines and he has absolutely no agency. And I think to connect this to our previous conversation, I see that you've got stuff to say. I'll let you go in a sec. This to me is the thing that really feels the most like Anna does not understand or rectify her privilege at all because all she wants is agency. And some of the only lines that Lavi has is, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this because this is going to make my, like it's my ass on the line when we eventually get caught throughout the entire story. And she never is able to see the way in which she thinks about him is unfair and unjust and literally exactly how the rest of society treats her. Yeah, yeah, he feels very much like a token character that was created to be a token character and the author seems to have, so far at least, I'm hopeful this will change. The author seems to have no self-awareness. And even the description, the description, he was more suited towards housework than some whatever description it was before labor. Military life, yeah. Which is like, oh, so we're playing with black stereotypes now. That We're just going to put that out there? That's fine, I guess. It's really gross and disgusting, and it's not okay. Black people do not exist to be your props. 
Yeah, it's really bad. It's really, really bad to the point where, and like I said, I, I genuinely don't remember how his role changes in the second half of the novel. I just remember that he's there. I, I don't think even if it does change, I mean, maybe it's really going to turn around, but the way it's described just feels... It feels icky, and I don't think there's very much you can do to turn that boat around. We're more than halfway through the book. Earlier, at the beginning of our season in Rebel Girls Book Club, we talked a little bit about white feminism with the book Red Clocks, because there was a Black character there who didn't really get a voice and happened to be the only Black character. But that book, at the very least, was a little self-aware. There were problems in execution, but you could tell that this person was at least maybe trying it really doesn't feel like there's any trying. And having read The Passion of Mary Magdalene too, I just want to point out because we had one Black character in that book as well. I don't think it was particularly handled as well as it could have been. I think that Dido played into a lot of strong, strong Black female tropes. But that narrative is so much more palpable than this narrative where this person literally just exists to be a prop and gets no agency beyond that ever. To the point where not even are their circumstances affecting their agency, but they don't even get a character or a description. Okay, I'm done now. I'm sorry. It makes me uncomfortable. If you've read this book, please question that narrative and question why it's not raising red flags. And let's do better in the future, please. But yeah, Lavi and Lavi's character is the biggest problem with this book, I think. My only other gripe with it is the insta-love thing, but I feel like every book that has Jesus in it is insta-love. You just, you see him, you're like, this is God, and then and, and then you're done. And that's, that's apparently the order of operations here. Uh, to touch on the insta-love thing real quickly, because I know that this is a particular gripe of yours, I don't actually mind it in this context, and you know why? It's because I think that love marriages are probably really, really slim. And if you have attraction, you're probably just so grateful for mutual attraction that it feels like love. I would agree with you, except for the fact that she calls him her love after they've met like twice in the hills, way before they were even at the betrothed engaged part. But I do think you have a good point. And she does talk about, she's a little bit self-aware. She does talk about how she's clean to Jesus because she met him the same day that she met her betrothed before Nathaniel, who was gross and icky, and Jesus stepped into a savior role for her. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I feel like it is important to note, because I feel like we've bashed on a kind of a lot in this episode, and and she deserves it, but she's not always this horribly not self-aware character who just glides through her life and doesn't help other people. I think that she really is just this woman who has an ability to read and write, which is extremely rare, and sometimes just has the trouble making the right decision. There are a lot of moments of self-awareness and growth within this. And she's cunning at some points when she's able to get Judas freed when he's imprisoned by bargaining with the Tetrarch who's about to be king and stuff. She's she's uh, she's interesting to read about, or at least I like her overall. No, I do too. I actually really identify with her as a character and I like her a lot. And I think Sue Monk Kid is a really good writer. I'm just, I the lobby thing really, you know, <laughs> it really... <laughs> left a bad taste. I texted Maggie before this episode saying, I don't know if I can finish this book. This is really bothering me. It's okay. Hopefully it gets better. Find out next week, you know, find out next week. 
Aside from that, it's actually a really good, fantastic book, and it's beautiful. Yeah, no, it's so true though. But it's but it's like a, at this day and age, such blatant, like such blatant disregard of of a black of the only black character is like such a huge flag that it really does bring down an otherwise fantastic book. Sorry, we're not meaning to be a review podcast, but you know, we're a feminist podcast, so we do have to talk about this because it's not okay for us to just praise this book for being super feminist because it's not. It's not feminist if it's treating its only Black character that way. Yeah, no, I agree. And also, I think it is important to say that while we are a podcast that is based on analysis, personal enjoyment does come into play. Like, you can't, it's, you can't totally separate whether or not you just liked a book from your analysis it's gonna come in and color stuff and I think that's also and like like you're saying I think that's even more important when we really like a book is that when you really like something it can be hard to be critical of it and I think that Harmony and I try really hard to to strip that back but as we encourage you all to you know be critical of the media you're consuming all you you know also take that grain of salt about us it's true we spout shit all the time it's true it's true what's your homework for the week my actual homework is that, you know, I'm going to be a scholar like Anna <laughs> and do my other, my actual homework. You know what? I have actually been more scholarly. I've been audiobooking. I can't read nonfiction. It's just not, it's not going to happen, especially not dense nonfiction. So I've been audiobooking. This goes into my, what am I reading question? I've been audiobooking manufacturing consent by Noam Chomsky, and I've been audiobooking Anarchy and Other Essays by Emma Goldman so that I can understand theory better and sound more informed when people try to talk to me about it. So I'm going to be a scholar like Anna. What about you, Maggie? You know, I'm going to go back to the conversation we had in the middle of the episode about how it's really hard to share your power. And I'm sorry, it's very late here, my friends. I'm usually more specific than this. But I think that this week I'm going to make sure that I have one really, really clear instance for myself where I am actively sharing my power. I think that as I've gotten older and more aware of those things, I'm better at passively doing that naturally working that into my day and my awareness and my conscience but it's always good to evaluate whether that is still working and actually working I'm just gonna like make an effort this week to make sure that I have one moment where it's like yeah you know I'm making the very conscious decision to do this because I have a lot of privilege and power in this situation and it's important that it's shared that's beautiful Maggie what are you reading I am reading too many things at once. I'm reading Senlin Ascends by Josiah Bandicroft, and I am reading Liberty by Caitlin Greenidge, and then I am also reading The Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Booley. What are you reading? We've heard about your non-fic escapades. What are you reading otherwise? I'm back on the Bridgerton series because my library, they're finally available again. So I'm reading To, your, to Sir Philip with Love, and then I'm also reading this book here. So it's a lot of books. It's a lot of books. Well, all right. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next week. And we're talking about the same book from page 215 until the end. So join us next week. Goodbye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club.
and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at Rebel Girls Book Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.